continue our, our study of uh, the Gospel of John. And uh, uh, Pastor James uh, Montgomery Boyce, uh, who was a, a very faithful uh, pastor in, in Philadelphia for many years, uh, wrote about the, the many different pulpits that he, he filled uh, over his pastoral ministry. Uh, and he notes uh, things about uh, pulpits that, that a preacher gets to see uh, that the congregation doesn't get to see. Usually, uh, from the congregation perspective, you just see the front of the pulpit. Uh, and uh, certain pulpits, ours is pretty basic here, uh, but some are very uh, ornate and have wood. And there's a lot of stuff uh, that can be contained in that pulpit. Um, uh, John MacArthur's uh, pulpit at Grace Community Church is actually bulletproof. Uh, and it lowers down into a, cha- a secret chamber underneath the stage uh, in case he has uh, death threats. I don't have anything like that uh, on, on mine. Uh, but uh, there, there's things that, that a preacher gets to, to see that, that a congregation doesn't get to see. And James Montgomery Boyce writes this. He says, on the, on the speaker's side, there are less glamorous things. Sometimes there are buttons to push, uh, wires to trip over, stacks of books, glasses, uh, fans, heaters, squeaky boards, and so on. He says, I have been in pulpits held up by hymn books. I have been in pulpits equipped with a clock so that the speaker knows when to stop. Uh, Sometimes there are signs, the service ends at 12 noon, or when the light goes on, you have two minutes remaining. Uh, And he says, there is one pulpit... That I always remember favorably, however. It is the pulpit of a little chapel on the campus of Stony Brook School, located at Stony Brook, Long Island. He says, I suppose that there are times when the backside of this pulpit is filled with hymn books and glasses of water, too. There may even be buttons, but I have never noticed these things when I have been there because of something else. And that something else is a quotation from the Bible, which faces the preacher as he stands to address his congregation. It is a very short quotation, but an arresting one. It simply says, Sir, we would see Jesus. That is a very great quote to have on the, the pastor's side of the pulpit. Now that's my goal each and every time I step uh, up front here uh, to preach from this pulpit. And I pray uh, that every time you uh, come here to, to church and get to, to sit and sing uh, and, and listen and fellowship, I pray that each and every time you come here on a Sunday morning that that is your desire, uh, that we would see Jesus. And, and the passage that we are going to study together this morning is, is where uh, that quotation comes from. And in this passage, we are, going to, we are going to see Jesus for who he is and what he is going to do. Uh, now, there are many passages in Scripture uh, that are how-to passages. Uh, they, they give us uh, instructions on how to deal with problems and circumstances in life. Right? They tell us uh, what we should uh, stop doing. Uh, what we should start doing to tell us uh, how we need to uh, repent of certain actions and put on other actions. Uh, and then there are other passages of Scripture which are who is passages. Uh, passages that, that present God to us, uh, that, that uphold Christ uh, to us, that, that help us to see and behold Him in all of His majesty, all of His power, all of His glory. So that we would begin to see who God is. We would begin to see uh, what he loves and also what he hates. That we would be able to, to see what he has done in the past and what he is doing now in the present. And our passage this morning uh, is very much a who is passage. 
Uh, it, it's going to uphold uh, for us who Jesus is uh, and what he has accomplished on our behalf so that we would be able to grow in our worship, adoration, and gratitude to him. As we studied last week, uh, we witnessed uh, in uh, chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, uh, we saw Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on what is commonly known as Palm Sunday. And uh, his entry into Jerusalem on that day is often often referred to as the triumphal entry. But we also saw that that's uh, that's a better uh, description of his entry in Revelation 19, uh, when he's going to come in on a white horse leading an army to bring judgment upon the earth. But last Sunday, as we saw Jesus entering into Jerusalem, he wasn't coming on a, on a white uh, stallion. He was coming on a donkey. He wasn't coming to, to bring war. He was coming to seek peace, uh, but a peace that his people didn't realize that they needed, a peace between God and man. And that was not the kind of peace that the, the people and the nation of Israel were desiring at that time. But what we're going to to study this morning is found in verses 20 through 23. But I I would like to to read, uh, beginning in verse 20, all the way through verse 36. The Apostle John writes for us, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to the worship at the feast. And these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to, et- to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become dismayed. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it it had thundered. And others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. And now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how do you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not uh, overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. And these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself 
from them. And these things that we uh, just read took place uh, likely on uh, Monday following Palm Sunday. Uh, this, is, this is the final week of Jesus' life, commonly known as the Passion Week. Uh, and this passage begins with some, uh, some Greeks uh, coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Now, and it is likely that Jesus spoke these words in the temple complex uh, to a lar- large group of people. And in this setting, uh, Jesus is going to announce that his hour has come. And this uh, might have been exactly what the, the crowd wanted to hear, right? Now, they, they wanted a conquering king. So when Jesus comes and says, my, my time is now, they are ready to go. But Jesus is going to, to say that it is his hour uh, to be glorified, but he's speaking about a different kind of glory. He's not speaking about a, a glorious conquest. He's speaking about a, a glorious death, a glorious resurrection. Now, the time has come for Jesus uh, to be given over to death so that he can save sinners, so that he can save the world. And as we study this passage, we're going to see two specific ways that that this moment uh, is a major turning point uh, in redemptive history. This this little moment of uh, Greeks coming and seeking to to see Jesus is very significant. And it it indicates two uh, major ways that this is a turning point. The first is found in verses 20 and 21. that This is uh, the turning point of Gentile salvation. And verse 20, uh, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at, at the feast. And the idea here is uh, th- these Greeks, uh, they, they were uh, Hellenists. Uh, they were uh, not uh, Jews uh, with uh, Greek names, uh, but they were uh, ethnically Greek. Uh, these were Gentiles who were uh, attracted to uh, Judaism and who were kind of involved in following God, but they they did not become full converts to uh, Judaism. Uh, And this uh, category of people is seen over and over again in the book of Acts because Paul's custom, uh, when he went into a a city, he would go and he would speak first in a synagogue. uh, And uh, when people would come to faith in the synagogue, he would work with them. But eventually, uh, in most cities, the synagogue would say, get out of here, Paul. Uh, And then from there, he would go to the the God-fearing Greeks. Uh, he, he would go and speak to those uh, uh, Greeks who were familiar with the God of uh, the Old Testament, uh, and he would preach uh, to them. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, verse 16, it says, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, uh, and then he says, And you who fear God. That's speaking to those uh, Greek believers. And then Acts chapter 16, verse 14, says, A woman named Lydia was a worshiper of God. Another uh, a Gentile uh, follower uh, of Yahweh. Uh, and uh, so these uh, Greeks are, are coming up to worship at the feast. Uh, and we're not told where these men come from, only that they are uh, Greek. We're not given uh, very much information here. And there's a lot of questions that we have as we read this. Uh, but uh, it might have been that they were familiar with uh, uh, Jesus uh, during his ministry in Galilee, which is a, a very Greek uh, region in, in the, the land of uh, Israel. Uh, and they were familiar with his ministry there, and they would have come up uh, to, to see him. 
Uh, and uh, they, they come to where Jesus is. Again, it might have been that Jesus is speaking in the temple complex uh, on, uh, during this time. Uh, and in the temple complex, there were three large uh, court areas. And, and the outer court uh, was uh, known as the court of the Gentiles. That was as far as the Gentiles uh, were permitted to go. Uh, then there was an, another court uh, for the women. Jewish women could approach uh, so close. And then uh, Jewish men were, were the, what was known as the inner court. They could uh, go all the way there. Uh, and so if, if Jesus was in the, the inner court, uh, maybe the, the Gentiles couldn't get, gain access to him. And they couldn't get all the way there. So maybe they saw uh, one of his disciples, uh, Philip. Uh, and they, they came up to Philip and they said, hey, we wish to see Jesus, there's, a, there's an expression of uh, desire there, and we don't know why, uh, why they came up to Philip. Uh, all, of the, all of the 12 disciples were, were Jews, but two of them had uh, Greek names, uh, Philip and Andrew, and maybe Thomas. We'll give him a pass. Um, but uh, it might have been that they came up uh, to uh, Philip for this reason. Maybe they, they knew him, they, they recognized him, or maybe they just... Uh, knew that he had a Greek name, uh, but, but they, they come up to Philip, and the, and the Greek language here makes it uh, clear that they were repeatedly uh, asking Philip uh, to see Jesus. Like, they're, they're approaching him and saying, hey, can you get us in, or can you bring Jesus out so that we can have an interview, a conversation uh, with him during this time? And uh, this is very, very significant, uh, that these Greeks are coming to uh, to Jesus uh, in verse 20. Uh, and, and I would look back at the, the final verse that we looked at last week. Uh, we saw uh, the, the Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders, those who were the teachers in the synagogues throughout Israel, saying to one another in verse 19, you see that you are gaining nothing. And they say, look, the world has gone after him. And again, uh, they're just saying that because they're exasperated that all of the, these Jews seem to be following after Jesus. And they uh, speak in an exaggerated uh, prophecy unknowingly uh, that the whole world is going after him. And in the very next verse, uh, the Gentiles are literally going after Jesus. They are seeking to, uh, to meet uh, with him. Uh, and, uh, and this is very significant. Uh, and it's to, to show uh, that what, they, what the Pharisees were afraid of is actually coming to take place. Uh, and the whole world is coming up uh, and going after Jesus. If you, very, if you remember, uh, at the time of Jesus' birth, that, that men from the east, the, the Magi, came. And here, at, close to uh, the time of Jesus' death, we have men from the, the west, uh, the, the Greeks who are coming and seeking for Jesus. And we have uh, all of the, the earth, in essence, coming and seeking their salvation in Jesus. They, they want to, to know more about who this Jesus is. They have heard about him, and they wish to speak with him. And this is a, a key turning point in Jesus' ministry. Things are, are not going to be the same from this time forward. And uh, this is... Uh, uh, this is pretty uh, amazing how this is going to, to take place. And, and turning points uh, is, uh, there's a major shift whenever a turning point in uh, Scripture takes place. And uh, really, we feel it in our own times. And in uh, history, there have been many key turning points. Uh, in, uh, from September 1st, 1939 to August 23rd, 1942, so nearly three years, uh, it seemed as if Nazi Germany was going to, to conquer all of Europe. Uh, during that uh, three-year period, Hitler's Germany had defeated 
Poland, Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and France. They had uh, driven the, the British uh, off of the continental Europe and, and uh, forced them onto their, their island home. And, uh, and at that same time, the Germans had uh, moved hundreds of miles into Soviet territory in the east. Uh, but Germany's streak of victories came to an end uh, at, at the Volga River, at a city named Stalingrad. Uh, that was going to be uh, the turning point in World War II. Uh, the, the Soviets uh, suffered more uh, combat deaths in the defense of that city uh, than the United States uh, suffered throughout the entire war. Uh, and casualties uh, for uh, the siege of Stalingrad are estimated, estimated at about two and a half million. Now, that was where uh, the, the war turned for Germany. Their 6th Army group was completely destroyed. And from that point forward, they didn't go any further. They, they had a, a uh, war of retreats uh, and, and defensive tactics. Uh, from that point forward, everything was different. That's what a, a turning point looks like. Uh, and that, that's what we are seeing here. Uh, that, that prior to this, uh, Jesus in his ministry uh, had been saying uh, that his ministry was to be focused upon the, the Jews. Uh, and uh, after this, uh, since uh, the, the Jews had rejected Jesus, uh, the message is still going to go forward to the Jews. Uh, but it's also going to go forward to the, the Gentiles. Uh, what we've seen in the Old Testament uh, is that uh, there were uh, occasions where some Gentiles were saved, but it was predominantly uh, the people of God were uh, the nation of Israel. But, but now things are going to be completely different. And because Israel has rejected, the gospel is now going to go forward to all of the nations. Uh, if you turn with me over to, to Acts chapter 13, this is... Uh, summarized nicely by the by the apostle paul as he is uh preaching uh, at a, a synagogue uh, in uh, sidian antioch which is on asia minor uh, and so uh, on one sabbath uh paul came and and he was uh preaching uh, in the synagogue uh, and uh the next sabbath uh, he comes back again verse 44 in acts chapter 13 the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as, as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But having shaken off the dust of their feet against them, they went to Iconium and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. God was always intending uh, to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And this is uh, seen in numerous places throughout the Old Testament. 
Uh, going back all the way to, to Genesis chapter 12, uh, God made a covenant with Abram, uh, and he said uh, that through Abraham, uh, all of the families of the world would be blessed. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses predicted that, that Israel would uh, go astray and wander from God, uh, but that God would provoke them to jealousy by bringing salvation to the Gentiles. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the prophet Isaiah says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. And on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light, the light will shine on them. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said this. He says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says there's going to be a whole lot of Gentiles who are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. But he says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the, the plan of God has always been to incorporate the, the Gentiles, to incorporate the nations into his plan of salvation. And what we're going to, to see is what is taking place uh, right here in the Passion Week, uh, the final uh, week of Jesus' ministry, where the, the Jewish nation is going to completely reject him, uh, and they are going to, to murder him. And this is going to be the catalyst for the, the gospel, uh, the message of salvation going all the way uh, to the ends of the earth. If you, if you uh, turn over with me to, to Mark chapter 11, this is also going to be uh, made clear in a, in a parallel uh, passage in terms of what is, what is taking place. Uh, Mark chapter uh, 11, you're going to see in verses 1 through 11, uh, the triumphal entry. Uh, Mark's account of that. Uh, then in verses uh, 12 through 17, you're, we're going to see something that's not included in John's gospel, but, but it's helpful to, to think through. Uh, verses 12 to 14, Jesus is going to, uh, to curse a fig tree. Uh, and, and the fig tree in the Old Testament is a, uh, is a symbol for the nation of Israel. Uh, and Jesus is going to, uh, to say that there's no fruit on this tree and he's going to curse the tree which is a symbolic cursing of the nation of Israel. And then in verses 15 through 17, I have a heading there. You probably have one similar. What does Jesus do? And again, this is, this is the Monday. This is after the triumphal entry. Jesus curses the fig tree, and then he goes to the temple in verses 15 through 17. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he was not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a robber's den. So, so think about this. So, so this on this Monday... We have the, the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, and uh, the money changers were set up in the court of the Gentiles. And that's why Jesus re rebukes them. He says, hey, this was supposed to be a court where the nations were allowed and permitted to come and pray and worship God. And, and you've turned it into something completely different. 
You know, you've not turned it into a place of worship or kept it as a place of worship. You've turned it into a den of robbers. And so we might say that at this moment in time, that the Greeks might have seen all of this, right? And suddenly the court of the Gentiles, which they would be allowed into, suddenly they can come and worship. And maybe they're like, hey, yeah, can we talk to you? Like, you just cleared this out, and now we can come and worship. We have more questions. We, we have more, uh, we want more conversation with you. But I also maybe understand if Jesus had just flipped over tables and he still has that, that whip in his hand, that maybe like, hey, let's maybe talk to one of his disciples and send him over, uh, rather than, than going up to him at this exact moment. But these, these Greek men coming in search of Jesus points to the fact that something new is, is happening. There has been a turning point. That the world, the nations are coming to look to Jesus for salvation. Uh, and God is going to, to put his plan for Israel on pause. And it's going to be resumed later. It's not going to completely reject Israel. This is, goes back to what Vincent was teaching in the equipping hour. So we're studying uh, the New Testament letters and uh, Revelation. God is, is now going to, uh, to be working in and through the Gentiles rather than working in and through the, the, the Jewish people. Luke chapter 21 verse 24 speaks of the times of the Gentiles. And Romans 11 verse 25 says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God has paused his plans with Israel for a time. And during this church age, as the gospel is going forth, and we as Gentiles are hearing the message of salvation through faith in Christ, we are being saved and we are being brought in. And now God is working in and through the nations. He's working in and through the church to proclaim this message of salvation. And the church is made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue and if you think back, how did, how did uh, the Gentiles uh, in the city of Antioch respond when they heard that the, that the message of salvation was now for them? What did they do? They, they rejoiced and they praised the word of the Lord that they were being brought into salvation. And we should have that same response when, when we hear and realize that initially salvation was for the Jews. But now it is for all of the nations. And this is the turning point that is taking place here and now. And you and I can rejoice and praise God that our salvation has come through the Jewish Messiah. Uh, and that we have been grafted into the promises that God gave to uh, the nation of Israel. You and I are among those Gentiles who have said, we wish to see Jesus. On a side note, God is, is not done with the Jews. He's going to resume his plan with them again. That goes back to Romans 11, and we'll save that for another time. But, but this is a turning point for Gentile salvation. Then secondly, uh, this is a turning point for Jesus' glory. Here, turn with me back over to, to John chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. Philip came... And he told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip came and 
told Jesus, and, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, and it, it's funny to see just what takes place here. Philip is approached, and he's like, I don't know what to do. Let me go talk to Andrew. Uh, and then Philip and Andrew uh, go and speak to, to Jesus together. And I, there may have been some hesitation on, on Andrew's part not to immediately come to, to Jesus because, again, up until that point in time, uh, salvation was directed primarily to, to the Jewish people. When, when Jesus had sent out his disciples to go and preach throughout the land in Matthew chapter 10, he said, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Philip may be in limbo, like, what, what do I do uh, with these Gentiles who are wanting to come and see Jesus? And so Philip uh, brings the situation to Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip uh, approach Jesus with it. Uh, and, and Jesus is going to respond, but, but his response is not going to actually address these Greeks who have actually come to, to, to see him. And we don't know what, what happened. We don't know. We can't say definitively whether or not they actually got to have a conversation with Jesus. Uh, it it might have been that they, they had a conversation uh, and John doesn't record it. Or it might have been that Jesus just kind of passes on uh, and says, no, I need to focus elsewhere right now. But either way, I think uh, it's not as important whether or not they got to, to see and speak with Jesus. What's more important is the fact that they came seeking. That's the, the catalyst here uh, that is going to, to prompt Jesus to, to stand up and speak the, the, to the bigger issue at hand. And the bigger reality uh, is that uh, his hour had finally come. And now prior to this, throughout John's gospel, uh, we got little breadcrumbs. uh, And we were constantly, uh, repeatedly told uh, that Jesus' hour had not yet arrived. Back in John chapter 2, verse 4, when uh, Jesus' mother comes and asks him to perform a miracle. uh, And... uh, Uh, He says, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Uh, In John chapter uh, 7, verse uh, 30, it says, So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And because the divine uh, appointment uh, had not yet arrived, uh, nobody could touch Jesus. The same thing is said in uh, chapter 8, verse 20. Now these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because... His hour had not yet come. But, but all of that changes here in this passage. Uh, we were told in kind of a foreshadowing, looking ahead, the hour is in the future. It's not here yet, but now suddenly, uh, from this point forward, Jesus is going to speak as his, uh, as his hour has arrived. It changes from future tense to present tense. If you look back at verse 27 uh, in chapter 12 that we read, Uh, For this purpose I came to this hour. If you you turn the page over to uh, 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, The hour has come for Jesus. The hour has arrived specifically for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is, is saying this, and, and he uses that term, Son of Man, and it's a, it's a messianic title. 
that comes from, from Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14, uh, in which the Ancient of Days, God the Father, gives all authority to this Son of Man. And so again, if, if you're there in the crowd, uh, in the temple that day with Jesus, and you're hearing this, you're getting even more excited. You're like, okay, I was kind of let down after the triumphal entry. I thought that was going to be it. But now he's saying this, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. You're like, hooray, let's do this again. Now is the time. But Jesus has a, a different type of glory in mind. A, again, a, a greater glory. And, and what Jesus is saying is not mean that, uh, that he hasn't revealed or been glorified throughout his earthly ministry. Uh, in verse 27, uh, or when we hear God's voice in verse 28, uh, God says, I have glorified uh, uh, his own name, and, and he will continue to glorify it again. And Jesus has glorified God the Father in everything that he has done. He has taught with authority. He has performed miracles. The, the blind see, the lame walk, uh, and uh, and so much more. But now Jesus is looking to uh, what will bring him the most glory. Uh, and that is his death on the cross. Now the hour has come for, for Jesus to be glorified in his uh, death, in his resurrection, and then ultimately in his ascension. Uh, and, and when Jesus speaks about his glory and how he will be glorified, all three of those are in view. Uh, but, but specifically right here, uh, what Jesus is pointing to uh, is the first of those three that all kind of come together. Now, Jesus is speaking specifically about the glory that will come through his death. Okay, this would have been deflating to the crowd, but, but Jesus gives a, a picture uh, to, to, to show forth what he is uh, teaching uh, in verse 24. If the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus uses this, this picture of a, a kernel of wheat. So yeah, if the, if the wheat falls on the stage right here, it's just going to stay right there until it's vacuumed up. Nothing else will come from that kernel of wheat. Now, the only way that that kernel of wheat uh, bears a crop is if we do what? We take it over to the soil, and we bury it, and it's going to die, and it's going to become something brand new. But it's going to bring forth uh, something far greater than what it was. It's going to bring forth uh, a harvest. That's what Jesus uh, points to as an illustration. And what Jesus is saying is that everything in his life and ministry has been building up to this hour, to this point. Everything that he's done has been anticipation of this. He's been delivered from death on multiple occasions, right? His hour had not yet come. There's moments in the gospel, if you're reading this, you're like, how did he get, how did he escape? Like they're literally there with stones in hand after he said, I and the Father are one. And then just as Jesus passed through them, you're like, how? What happened? He, he was delivered because it was not yet his time. But he says, now the hour has come. The implication is, the next time the Jewish leaders seek to take his life, there's not going to be a miraculous deliverance. 
They, they are currently conspiring to arrest him, to falsely accuse him, and to put him to death. And Jesus is saying, they're going to succeed this time. Now is the time. And Jesus is going to, to die at the appropriate time on the Passover so that he can be the Passover lamb, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the entire world. What Jesus is, is highlighting here, this is a turning point for his glory. Previously, he had glorified the Father in his life, in his teaching, in his miracles. And now he's going to glorify the Father through his death. And even more so, Christ's glory is going to come through the suffering on the cross and in the salvation that he accomplishes for us and for all who look to him in faith. And we have a, a Savior because Jesus was, was willing to go to the cross. A.C. Ryle, 19th century pastor and theologian, says, Other religions have laws and moral precepts forms and ceremonies, rewards and punishment. But other religions cannot tell us of a dying Savior. They cannot show us the cross. This is the crown and glory of the gospel. This is that special comfort that belongs to it alone. And miserable indeed is that religious teaching which calls itself Christian but contains nothing of the cross. Now, a man who teaches in this way might as well profess to explain the solar system, but tell his hearers nothing about the sun. What we see here, this is, this is the turning point for Christ's glory. Uh, but this should also, because it's, this is the focal point of Christ's glory, this is also uh, the focal point of our glory. Uh, this is the focal point of our hope. Now, this... Uh, Jesus Christ dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. That should be the center of our universe. That should be the center of our lives. Everything that he accomplished for us on our behalf, our lives need to revolve and orbit around that central truth of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. To quote J.C. Ryle again, he says, Christ was crucified for sinners, and yet many Christians live as if he was never crucified at all. Right? We, we say that uh, we are following Christ, but he's not, he's not central. He's something else that's in orbit around us. Or he needs to be the focal point. This is the central aspect of his glory. His death on the cross. And we all too quickly and all too easily relegate it to something on the side. If we have, if we have done that, we, if we've placed Christ in orbit around someone or something else, rather than putting Him at the center, we have to confess that. We have to see that the foolishness of that. We have to to confess it and seek God's forgiveness and then put Christ where he belongs. Uh, he lived and died on our behalf. And as we're going to see next week in, in the verses that are immediately following what we are studying today, verses 24, 25, 26, Jesus is going to say, if you're following me, you need to be willing to, to die. For Christ lived and died for us so we could be saved. And now he's going to call us to live and die for him not to earn our salvation but out of thanksgiving and gratitude 
because he paid the full penalty for our sins. All who look to him in faith are forgiven and reconciled with God the Father. And all who reject the glory of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross still face the punishment of God. But Jesus offers salvation to all. He calls everyone to come to him. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Earlier in this gospel, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. The the time has been building in Jesus' life and ministry for this exact moment. This is the turning point for Gentile salvation. This is the turning point for Jesus' glory. Uh, And and the message about the cross can be a turning point, and indeed should be a turning point, uh, in each and every one of our lives. Amen? Uh, If you are a believer, then the cross of Christ is a turning point for you. Uh, When you looked to what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you, when you looked and beheld Him crucified on the cross for you, you were saved. You became a, a new creation. And now you're no longer pursuing all of the things that you used to pursue, but now you're pursuing Jesus because you see and behold Him and how worthy He is because of all that He has done. You're here this morning, uh, and all of this is new to you. I I would uh, urge you, if you have questions, please come speak with me. Uh, Speak with the person who, who invited you here today. But what is really exciting about this morning is we get to hear about how Jesus was a turning point in someone's life. As as we get ready, we're going to end the service here after one last song. Uh, We get to to hear about how the Lord has worked uh, in the life of Gabriella. Uh, We get to hear how he has been that turning point for her. We get to hear her testimony. We get to to witness her baptism. Uh, We get to celebrate and rejoice. Uh, and all that he has done and all that he is able to do uh, in the life of anybody who looks to him in faith. But let's go to him in prayer, thanking him and praising him for all that he is.